I wonder if you cast your minds back, if you can remember the bushfires that ravaged our nation not too long ago. COVID has, has taken our attention, of course. Uh, it's, it's become centre stage for good reason for a long time. But if you cast your mind back to the recent bushfires that went through our nation, uh, you can be reminded again of some of the devastating images that we, that we saw um, on our television screens and of the charred landscapes that were the result of these enormous fires that we saw in our nation, some of the largest that we'd ever seen. And some of these bushfires devastated Kangaroo Island. Can you remember? That was, that was on the news. Also, the Adelaide Hills and many other parts of South Australia uh, were devastated. But it reminded us of something. It reminded us of the fact that fire plays an important role in environmental ecology, that it's needed to trigger natural processes. For instance, certain plants, certain seeds do not germinate, do not open unless it is for bushfire. There are some species that actually require it for their seeds to sprout. Such plants, such as the lodgepole pine, the eucalyptus and abanxia have a cera, cera, I'm trying to get this right, cera, serotonous cones or fruits that are sealed with resin. So hard, hard cones that are sealed with a special resin and unless a fire comes through the nation, those very seeds cannot germinate. It takes the fire for those seeds to germinate. We have a number of shrubs and annual plants here in Australia that require not only the heat but a chemical signal from the smoke that comes into the air that breaks down the seed's dormancy and it sprouts. Some of these plants will only sprout in the presence of such chemicals in the smoke or because of the fire. And if it is not for this event, which is devastating... All of these seeds will remain dormant and can do so for decades. I'd like to show you a a little bit of a clip. As I was researching this, um, I found this online and it's some of the actual images from South Australia. that interesting because it paints a real picture of the devastation that fire brings but also the reminder that such fire also enables new growth and then seeds to germinate once again that without fire would not. In the midst of this 
This, in the midst of this physical rea- reality, there's a far greater spiritual one, and that is, is this, that life, that true spiritual life came as Jesus was risen from the grave. It came as he rose again from the dead, proving that death did not have a hold on him, that death does not need to have a hold on us, and that we can have eternal life through him, but it would demand something. It would demand physical death. It would demand that Jesus would go to the cross. You see, the journey to the resurrection would demand suffering, the agony of death on a cross. We're about to begin a new journey in a a new series walking into this term. So a bit of a promotion there for that small group series uh, that if you're a part of a, a small group or you join a small group, we'll be looking at that. But on Sundays, we'll also be looking at those themes each week in our, in, our, in our preaching. The theme is not a fan, completely committed followers. And today is an introduction to that series. And our theme for today is this, ruin before resurrection. That in order for the resurrection to occur, for Jesus to rise from the grave, from the grave he needed to go through ruin. The definition for ruin is this, the physical destruction or disintegration of something or the state of disintegrating or being destroyed. Jesus would undergo physical death. His human body would die. He would, he would go to a grave in order to be spiritually resurrected. See, this is, was true in the life of Jesus and would become a hallmark for followers of Jesus Christ. That in order for real life, spiritual life, to be a reality in our lives, there is a journey of ruin. That's the irony of the good news. And it's simply that life is found in death. Freedom is found in surrender. Hope is found in release. Today I'd like to unpack a scripture which is quite confronting in its nature. It's from Matthew chapter 16 from verse 21. And today I'd like to take a bit of a journey together. I'd like just to open up each part of scripture, pause, unpack, pause and unpack and get a grasp and an idea of what Jesus is saying here and how his disciples responded. Forgive me as I just get a drink. All that talk about fire got me thirsty. (laughs) In Matthew 16, this verse begins with these words, from then on. From then on, okay, pause. When you ever read a statement like that, it's a a follow-on. It's coming from something else. And so Jesus has been walking and and, and walking the land. He's been teaching people about himself. He's been healing the sick He's been calming storms. People have come to understand that he is unique. They're following him. There's, there's crowds that are following him to hear his wisdom, to, to follow his teaching. There are disciples that are following him. They've given up everything to follow him day by day. And in the midst of this, Jesus turns and shares these words. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things 
at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. And here's our first section, you could say, where Jesus comes to his disciples and he shares his plan with them. This is the first time Jesus actually will share that he will suffer and that he will die. It was prophesied that the Messiah would go through such things. But in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the first time he actually comes out and shares it. Shortly after, he will share it again and continue to share this news. But this is the first time he comes and tells them these words. He comes and he shares that his pathway to victory, that his pathway to the resurrection, to eternal life, would be via a cross. He shares that he would be a suffering servant. We have this picture of Jesus Christ and what he came to do. That Jesus would come humbly accepting the cross. Full knowledge that he would come and he would be crucified. Come sharing that victory. His resurrection would only be found through suffering. A necessary part, we read. A necessary part of his journey. Not one that could be avoided. This would be the cost. He would be killed and he would be raised from the dead. And the disciples shortly react and respond. One in particular, Peter, will respond. And one thing they respond to is the fact that Jesus is defining what it would mean for him to be a Messiah. The Jewish nation, the Jewish people had waited for a Messiah for for hundreds of years and he would come, he would rescue them as they were, as a people, as a nation were in slavery. They were hoping for him to come and to release them from that bondage for a very real sense of freedom. And this, these words that Jesus says, this is a far cry from what they were hoping for, from what they expected. They had hoped for a military leader, someone who would restore their very nation, and yet here comes Jesus saying that he would be killed. It's a very different idea, but Jesus is defining what it means to be the Messiah. And for us, as we read this, this can be an encouragement for us. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, from verse 14, these words, So then, since we have a great high priest, this is speaking of Jesus, who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. For this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So an encouragement for us as followers of Jesus today is that Jesus came and although he had all the power of the universe, he surrendered himself to suffering, to weakness, to trial, to persecution. So when we come to God in prayer, we come on our knees, when we come to seek his help, we can understand that he has suffered far more than we can possibly imagine. We can come and find comfort because he has been there. He understands and he empathises with our position. He's not unaware. 
He himself has experienced the effects and the pain and the disconnection of sin and the brokenness that it entails. Jesus would come as a suffering servant. And the story continues on. But Peter, one of the disciples, took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Here we see Peter's response, remember, not just to Jesus, but to God's plan in and through Jesus Christ. Peter, imagine Peter with the disciples sitting there listening to what Jesus is saying and everything within him just starts to respond. There's this reaction that's come out here that's saying, no, I hear what you're saying, Lord Jesus, but no, definitely not. No, he just automatically responds. And I love his response. Heaven forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. I won't let this happen. This this can't be. Find it interesting. You see Peter's response. What does he respond to? If you look at the words that Jesus shared, yes, there are some challenging words there, but Jesus has just shared some of the greatest news of all time that he would do what? He would be raised from the dead. Think of those words. He would would rise again. He's sharing good news with the disciples. But what does Peter see? What's the only thing that captures his attention? The struggle and the trial. And his response is, no, Lord, no, 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 we're not going there. He's just heard some of the greatest news of all time, but he cannot see past the trial. This is not the way it should be, says Peter. And think about this. Here's Jesus, the very Son of God, sharing this news and Peter is saying, no, thank you, Jesus. I I hear what you're saying, but that's not going to happen. Wow, think of the nerve of of Peter. This this is the Son of God and he's saying, no, I, I don't agree. This isn't going to happen to you. What boldness from Peter. But then if you go a little bit further back, if you've got your Bibles open, you can even find it there. Only a few verses previous to this occurrence is another very famous passage of Scripture where Jesus comes to his disciples and asks, Who do you say that I am? Peter stands up and says, You are the Messiah, you are Jesus, you are the Son of God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, the Father in heaven has given you this knowledge. This has come from him and Peter, you are are the rock. His name literally means the rock. Peter, the rock on you, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. What a powerful statement. So Peter has just come from this moment where Jesus has looked at him and declared that in him, the church will grow. And that even the gates of hell will not overcome this. So I'm imagining here that as Peter hears these next words, this is just before, as Jesus shares these words, I'm imagining Peter thinking, no, wait, nothing's going to overcome 
this. Nothing is going to overcome this, this movement. So how can you say, Jesus, that you're going to die? You've just told us that nothing will overcome it and now you're going to die. So I wonder if that's this, this guttural response is poured out. Whatever the case, he doesn't like it. He argues it. No, this can't be. As I look at Peter, I realise that this is not like us at all, is it? <laughs> Bit of a satirical question there for you. Let's be honest. Even in our own dialogue with God, we often come with a better plan. Have you ever done this? If you haven't, you're either not praying or you're lying. <laughs> we do this, don't we? Lord, I see what's going on in the world but I reckon this is how it should be. Lord, surely this is a better way. Surely this is what you could do. We give these, these suggestions humbly. Lord, we come before you, but have you ever thought of? But what about? COVID has, has been an interesting season, hasn't it? We've all got these conspiracy theories that are going on and, and much of my prayer is, Lord, what's going on? Do we really have to go through this? Do we really? Surely there's another way. Surely we could do this via another route. It's true in our own lives where we're, we're faced with trial or trouble. Lord, surely we can do this another way. Surely you can stop this. Surely there's another way. It's part of our natural response as humans is to fight tragedy and trial. We want to avoid it at all costs. That's why this is such a challenge. And Jesus responds to Peter, and we can see something quite clearly here. Jesus is not impressed. In the next words we read this. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get away from me, Satan. Seems harsh, doesn't it? I mean, where is the lovey-dovey Jesus we have become accustomed to. And if we are honest, the one we would much prefer than the one that would say, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And this is not an encouragement, too, on a side note, to use these words. I tried it once. My dad won't mind me sharing because it's a bit funny. When I was at Bible college... Uh, I was working with my dad and uh, I used to work and dad jokingly once said, oh, don't go to Bible college anymore. Work with me. This is good. You know, we're enjoying working together, the camaraderie. And just as a joke, I went, dad, stop. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> dad laughed because he knows his scripture well. <laughs> but that's not what this is saying. Okay, <laughs> It's not what this is saying at all. Jesus is speaking against Peter. And Peter, although he has good intentions, 
is actually trying to work against God. It helps to see what Peter is actually speaking against. You see, Peter sees this road to suffering as the trap. But Jesus sees the hindrance of God's will as a far greater trap than the trial that was in store. See, Jesus has a much bigger picture in mind, far greater perspective than his disciples, than Peter, than we can ever see. I want to say I don't see Jesus being disappointed or angry at Peter for just being himself. We know that Jesus loves Peter with everything. We know that Jesus loves all people. So this is not an attack on his person. This is not an attack on his worth. No, this is a chastisement against his natural response to seek his own wisdom, not God's. Do you see it? Peter is just seeking his own wisdom, not God's wisdom. And in this case, the very suffering that Peter is trying to bypass is the very road that would lead to the greatest and far-reaching event of all time, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Think about it. If Peter had his way, Jesus would then not have gone to the cross. If Peter had his way, Jesus would not have died. If Peter had his way, Jesus would not then have rose again. If Peter had his way, sin would not have been defeated. If Peter had his way, we would all still be lost in our sin. If Peter had his way, we and he would be unable to be restored back to God. See the consequences of the short-sightedness of Peter. Without the cross, there would be no victory over sin. Without suffering, there would be no ultimate end to pain and to suffering. Without physical death, there would be no way to eternal life. That is the thing Peter was asking for. So Jesus, in all truth, and I would say in all grace, simply says, Peter, you're getting in the way of God's plan. You're getting in the way of something far greater than you can imagine. It's going to take the cross to get there. So there are practical truths for, for us here and now in the midst of this. Some of them are quite challenging. And one is this. We can hinder the work of God by not recognising his will at times in our lives. If we simply come to God with our own good intentions, our own human wisdom, we can actually get in the way of what God wants. When all we bring is our limited perspective, we can actually be hindering what God is trying to do. Often by not recognising that trial, or trouble, persecution... Suffering. By not recognising this is, that this is often an integral part of the journey for us in our walk with Jesus, we can often hinder what he's doing in our world and in us. We often just struggle to see the big, bigger picture and so when it's tough, we want to avoid it. But God is often using it to shape us, to develop us, to become more like him or to do a far greater work in our world that maybe we will never even understand. It's a part of our human condition. 
even after spiritual highs, we, we see Peter, he's come from this amazing spiritual high just previously. From one of probably the greatest moments in his spiritual walk for Jesus to turn to him and to say these things in a flash, where does he find himself? Hindering God's plan. He goes from being told, you are going to be used to grow my church in great ways and then in an instant finds himself in a place hindering God's very plan and God's will. So that should humble us. Helps us to realise that we are susceptible to our own humanness even after the most spiritual of moments in our lives. Even over even after the greatest spiritual encounters with God, we are still susceptible to human weakness. Michael Green writes these words, Whatever spiritual experiences we may have had, we remain just as fallible and as weak as before. It's a humbling statement. There is no place, no matter how spiritual, that will help us rise above our weaknesses on this side of eternity. So it also reminds us of this. We far too often depend on our own wisdom far too quickly. Especially in opposition and in struggle. It's one of our automatic responses, isn't it? No, like Peter, no, surely there's another way. Surely we can, we can go some other direction. This is a reminder for us to pause and ask, is this just my own guttural response? Is this just what I want? Or am I really seeking God in this? And we can do this also, not just in our own life. And this, this is an encouragement and a challenge for us as we counsel others. We can often do this when we counsel people. You know, a friend comes and shares a tough situation, we can all too quickly just go, okay, well, let's pray this away. Yep, let's come, let, let's pray this through. Let's, and we, that's what we're trying to do. We're praying that this will go away. See, this is an encouragement to pause and go, wait. Wait a moment. Maybe God is using this journey. Maybe God is using this situation, this, this, this trial, to shape us, to form us. And so it's an encouragement as we come and as we sit with people who are also going through tough times, not just to, to give false hope, because we can do that. We can give false hope by promising them something that God doesn't even intend for them. Maybe God's intention is the hard road. We come, the thing that we can offer is God himself who will give us the strength, the boldness, the peace to make it through that journey. It's a reminder that we far too often try to oppose the struggle in us and in others. I found a really practical practice, just something really practical that helps me in my own life keep putting this in the proper perspective. And it's a simple thing. The Lord's Prayer. Simply coming to God and praying the words of the Lord's Prayer put us in a humble place because if you know the Lord's Prayer and if you don't, I'll tell you the words. It begins with the words, your kingdom come, 
your will be done. It flows on. See how it starts? Father, I come before you. The very first request in that prayer is, is an act of surrender. I come to you. I put my will aside. I put my plans aside. Although I think they're really good, mind you, <laughs> I choose to put them aside. And I surrender myself to your plan. I surrender myself to what you would have in my life, be that through persecution, through trial. I surrender myself to you, trusting Lord, that you see the bigger picture, a far greater picture than I could ever see. Often when I don't know the words to pray, that's where I go. don't know the words to pray, start there. Lord, here I am. May your will be done in my life. That's what Jesus was arguing for. Peter, getting in the way of what God has. Move aside. Then this series continues. And I'll speak quite honestly, this is quite unresolved. This is where everything within me wants to just wrap this up neatly and move on. But no, these, this is a big theme. And the words that follow are these. Jesus responds with these words. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life... For my sake, you'll save it. In these few words, as Jesus previously has defined who the Messiah is and what he would come to do, he now defines what it means to be his follower, to be his disciples. Completely committed followers. No fans, no spectators completely sold out as followers of Jesus Christ. And here's the irony of the good news. The irony is that as we surrender our lives to Jesus, this is where we truly find life like never before. It's the upside-down nature of the good news. We discover that we find true life as we surrender our life to him We find freedom in surrender. We find hope in release. We find that as we are broken, we become whole. We find that as we mourn, we find true happiness. We find as we are truly authentic to who we are, we are truly accepted. And we find that as we empty ourselves, we are filled These are big ideas and they transform and change the way we live our life for Jesus if we understand them and as we bring them and and, and implement them into our own lives. And so that is where we walk. That is where we will continue as we go on this journey together. For today, I want to leave you also with some thoughts, some practical questions as you go. As we begin this journey together, we'll continue to unpack these, but here's a couple for us in this time. You know, in the 
world that we live in, with the present reality of sin, death is a reality before resurrection. Part of our journey with Jesus means that as his disciples, he's transforming us. There are things that we give up. There's things that we die to in order for him to work within us. So as you go through this series, here's a few questions to ponder and you can begin today. What is, firstly, simply this, what is it in us, what is it in you that needs to die? In order for God to completely work in you, for his full life to emerge in you, what is it in you that needs to be surrendered? Is it control? Is it selfishness? Is it giving up the need to continue to tell God how things need to be done and to truly to surrender for the plans he has for your life, which we know in John 10.10 come with this promise, Jesus said, I have come to bring life and life in its fullness. Full life that we could never imagine. Can I pray? Father, we come before you and we are challenged by these words. We are challenged by this Jesus. Thank you that you do love us. That you came to bring life and life in all its fullness. Father, we so often can't understand or see what you're doing. We can't see the journey or the pathway to that place. And so we come before you, Father, simply asking that you would help us surrender to you. When we do not understand what you are doing, enable us, Father, to trust in you for you are good. We come, Lord, putting aside our own wisdom. We come seeking yours. We thank you that your Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us as we surrender ourselves to you. We thank you that as we do so, we find life like never before, a life we could never have even imagined. So we give ourselves to you this morning, Father, and as we go, may you continue to shape us to become more like you. Continue to grow us, Father, into your likeness. We give you praise and we give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people say, Amen.